Reach College Sermons Online from Sunday, February 6th, 2022 by Taylor Gabbard, pastor to college students at Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, entitled Do from Colossians 3, 12 through 17. There is a stirring. So we are still in Colossians. We're in uh, Colossians chapter 3. Um, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. We'll go from 12 to 17 today. Um, so let's review. So we know that Colossians is Paul's uh, letter to the church at Colossae. Um, he's in prison as he writes this letter. He's in prison at Rome. Um, and he's writing this letter to address a heresy, right? So Epaphras, his disciple, has come to him in prison and he's saying, hey, there's this kind of problem, belief system that's cropping up at the church and, and I'm worried about it. And so Paul is writing a letter to address it. But the interesting thing about this, this letter is that the tone is very different from a lot of Paul's letters. So it's not as angry, really. It's not a, as much of a rebuke because Paul's actually saying, like, you guys are actually doing a great job. You're believers, you're true Christians, so keep it up. Don't let this false belief system take root, right? So, um, and then and then he talks, in that first week we talked about what it means to know God, right? So this is not an intellectual understanding that there is a God or that you believe in a higher power, but this is an actual knowing of God, right? A relationship with Him. Have you ever noticed that you become who you hang around, you act like your group, right? If you hang out with a group that has bad morals, has a certain activity they do, that's what you're going to get into, right? Um, it's natural. And so part of this process, what Paul's talking about is be in a relationship with God, hang out with God, and you'll act more like Him. You'll do the things that God wants you to do. So he says, know God, so you can act like God, so you can know God more. And we talked about uh, Reach College, this class, right? And we decided that, that the point of Reach College is not going to be whether or not you are actively enrolled in college classes. The point of Reach College is going to be what do we believe, right? Because this is the first time in our lives as we turn 18 and we, you know, whether you move away or you don't, really your belief system's up to you. It's your decision now. So what do... I believe, and how do I live that? How do I actually act on it? What do I? What does my belief system mean that I need to do? Right. So then, week two, we saw this Christological hymn. All right, and that was in chapter one, and and uh, really all of Colossians and the Bible is a focus on Jesus Christ. And now it's very apparent in Colossians because Paul's not going to go like three verses without saying. Jesus and Christ, right? But the point is that the whole Bible really is that same focus. It's all Christ-centered. From, from Genesis to Revelation, that's the point. And he says that the fullness of God dwells in Jesus, right? And we talked about what that means, right? Not only that, that Jesus was God, right? But also that there's no fullness to be found in the world or the created universe apart from Jesus. So whatever you're chasing that's not Jesus it doesn't fulfill you. It can't fulfill you because all fulfillment is in Jesus. And then week three, we talked about glorious riches. So glorious riches means God himself, 
It's the kind of riches that we get when we become Christians. We get God himself. And the interesting thing about this is that these are the only riches that you get to take with you when you die. You can amass the world's wealth and it all stays behind. But glorious riches, God himself, that's what comes with you. Week four, Paul talked about the heresy, talked about human traditions, right? And we, we call those rules, right? These these sets of rules and lists that we got to keep. And if I keep this set of rules, if I do these good things, I'm holy. And that's what matters. And he talks about how that's basic. That's not a, a good thing, right? And then he tells us to be rooted like a tree in the faith or to abide, to remain in Jesus, right? He tells us to be built up like a structure, right, in obedience. This is, this is the idea of being useful, right? You can have a good foundation, but if there's nothing on top of that foundation, it's it's kind of pointless almost, right? The whole point of the foundation is to be built up on it. And then he says to be established like a business, to have a reputation, right? To witness Jesus in your life by the way that you act and act for a long period of time, right? So then week five, Paul says, here's the things, do not do these things. He gives us a list, right? He says, do not do these things. And this list really isn't a list of actions, it's a list of how to love God and others. It's attitudes. It's like, he says anger, right? He didn't say anger by doing X, Y, and Z. He just says anger, right? He's talking about an attitude, an attitude towards God and towards other people. These are heart attitudes. So this week, last week Paul told us what he said, do not do these things. And this week we're going to see the things that he says that we should do, right? The things that we want to do okay so look in uh look in colossians chapter 3 verse 12 so as those who have been chosen of god holy and beloved put on a heart of compassion kindness humility gentleness and patience bearing with one another and forgiving each other whoever has a complaint against anyone just as the lord forgave you so must you do also okay some translations start verse 12 with, uh, therefore, mine says so. I actually like therefore better. Um, essentially, therefore, so does it too, but therefore is a very clear connection to what we've already talked about. So he's saying, don't do these things. Don't be your old self. You used to do these things. Therefore, now you're going to do these things, right? It's a connection. So he says, before this, you do, used to do X things, therefore... Now, and he's saying, why? Why do you do new things now? He's saying, because you are chosen and beloved. Okay, so uh, chosen and beloved. First, what does this word chosen mean? It means that you, you have been saved by God. You are his chosen people. Look at it this way. What if you were to go to God and say, God, I'm wrong. My life, it... it I need you to get to heaven to be with you. That's I, I need you. And God was like, eh, sorry, I chose some other people instead. Right? The, what this is is actually an assurance that God has chosen you, that when you have repented and had faith, he has chosen you back, right? It's not this idea of like, you know, your elementary school crush that you, you know, you admitted you liked her and she or him and, and they went, uh, yeah, no thanks. Right? God has chosen you as well. And then he says, beloved. So beloved is, is that it's not begrudgingly. God didn't go, uh, okay, I guess I'll choose you too. 
It means dearly loved. God chose you because of how much he loves you, how much he cares about you. You didn't get into heaven by the skin of your teeth, right? You didn't just skate by, but God actively loves you and chose you and has accepted you into heaven. He says, so since you've been chosen and since you've been loved, do these things. He says, put on. This is the idea of like wearing, like wearing attitudes, like putting on certain attitudes. Um, it's, a, it's an imagery of putting on clothes, but he's talking about these attitudes. So he says, put on a heart of compassion. So this is love characterized by mercy. It's putting others first out of a true concern, a tender heart. It's this idea that I, I see you and I have the same mercy that God has for you and tenderness towards you, and I've now, I'm now showing you love in that way. It says kindness. Think of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan stopped to be kind to this total stranger, right? We know that story that the, the Pharisee and the, and the uh, I can't remember the second person, so two people pass by this man who's in need, right? He's hurt. And the Good Samaritan is the one who shows him kindness. I heard a pastor say this once about Jesus. Jesus is walking down the road, and there's all these people around him, and somebody yells out, Son of David. And what did Jesus do? It's so simple, and we, we, we overlook it. Jesus stopped. Jesus stopped all the time for people. And we are constantly just too busy for everyone else. We don't take the time to stop for people. And that's what kindness is. It's this reality that, like, I, I'll stop what I'm doing to help you. He says humility. So there's two kinds of humility, really, that we can have. There's humility towards the lost, and there's humility towards our fellow believers. Humility towards the lost... I've, I've talked to you guys about this comfort versus crisis thing. Humility is me saying, I'm going to choose to put you before me. When you, when you do the reverse of that with the lost, when you have pride towards them, what you're saying is, my comfort in this situation is more important than your crisis. Because people who are lost are going to hell. That's a crisis. So when we have humility towards them, we put our comfort aside for their crisis. And then when we look at uh, humility towards Christians, it's Christian pity. Because here's what we do with Christians. Well, you're already saved. You should know better. You should know better. No, that's not, that's not it. The, the reality of humility towards your brother and your, your brothers and sisters in Christ is to look at them and say, this thing, this sin that you're hanging on to, this is preventing you from being in perfect communion with God. And, and because I care about you, because I have a heart of compassion, because I have kindness towards you, I'm actually going to pray for you. I'm going to be patient with you because I want you to be in communion with God because that's the best place we can be. Here's the reality. A lot of times when somebody's having a problem, when you're having a problem with somebody, you are focused on them being right with you. Here's the reality. If that person was right with God, they would be right with you. And that's what you should be more concerned with. That is humility. He says gentleness. This is an effort to, to not deal harm. Effort to not deal harm. A lot of times it's really easy to be harsh with people. This is actually a huge problem in my life. 
I, I come from this world where um, people speaking harshly to each other is the day in and day out. So a lot of times I don't even notice that my tone is harsh. And it's a kind of a lack of uh, patience. It's a, a little bit of a pride thing, right? Like, um, oh, really, you're too dumb to get that? I'm just going to write you off right now because you should already know. One of the verses in the Bible that God has convicted me with personally is he says the high priest deals gently with those in his flock because he too is clothed in weakness. Here's the reality. When you are harsh with people, it's because you've got it figured out and they just need to get with the program. You are clothed in weakness and you may not struggle with the same problem like some people the people that is hardest for me to be gentle with are the people struggling with problems I don't struggle with but it's a complete blindness to the fact that I'm struggling with my own set of problems and I have to figure that out and that allows me to be gentle with people and he says patience this is the opposite of resentment listen people are really hard to deal with they are lost or not lost and so are you and when you have a lack of patience with people, what you you think you're the person that nobody has to be patient with ever? You don't get on anybody's nerves? And get this. What would it be like if Jesus had stopped having patience with you at some point? That's a nightmare I don't want to live. So when Jesus gives you patience, he expects you to be patient with other people. He says, bearing with and forgiving. Okay, so bearing with is this idea of enduring imperfections. Here's the thing. I'm not perfect. I need you guys to bear with me in that. I need you guys to give me some grace because I'm not perfect. And I have to do the same for you. And you have to do the same for everybody else, right? You have to bear with people and you have to forgive them the way that you have been forgiven. We are sinners in close proximity with each other. You know what that means? We're going to get scuffed up. We're going we're gonna to bump into each other because we're not perfect and our imperfections are in very close contact. Do you want to stop being annoyed with people? Go live in a cave. That's it. That's your option, right? But if you're going to be in the body of Christ and around people, People are going to be hard to deal with sometimes, and that's why you have to bear with them and forgive them. He says, just as Jesus Christ forgave you. Okay, in Matthew 18, there's the parable of the, the slave's debt, right? So this slave is called before his master to account for his debt, and his debt is massive, bigger than he can ever pay. But his master forgives him his debt. Who knows this parable? You know what happens next? He turns around and he finds somebody who owes him a very, very small amount of money. And he, and he says, I'm going to throw you in jail because you owe me. How incredible is that? This man has just been forgiven a sum he could never pay back. And he couldn't extend that forgiveness to somebody who owed him a small amount. That's what you do when you are forgiven your sin debt to God and you hold grudges against people. You are refusing to forgive even as you were forgiven. Look in verse 14. In addition to all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Okay, I want you to notice something about these attitudes. 
Hard compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with and forgiving. These are all about loving other people. That's Every single one of these attitudes is to love other people. James calls it the royal law. He says that if you obey the royal law, it is to love your neighbor more than yourself, to love others. Okay, we know that the greatest commandment is to love God. So we kind of rack and stack. It's like, well, I got to love God and then I can love other people. Here's the thing. Loving others is acting like God because God loves people and acting like God is loving Him. So when you obey the royal law, when you love others more than yourself, you are loving God. What, is, we, what do we know about the Bible and, and man? We're created in God's image. That's why the Bible is so clear that when we love other people, we love God. And yet, when we curse other people or murder other people or sin against other people, we're sinning not just against men, but against the very image of God. That's why there's prophets that go to, the, to Israel people in the Old Testament and they say, you say you love God, but you curse men made in God's image. It doesn't work like that. Paul in verse 14 is saying, what he's saying is that love is what binds all of these attitudes together in perfect unity. What he's saying is love gives these things full power. How are you going to have a heart of compassion if you don't love people? How are you going to have kindness if you don't love people? It's fake. How are you going to have gentleness if you don't love people? Love is what binds all these things in perfect unity and gives them their full strength. And ultimately, why do we love? Like, why do we do any of this stuff? Paul has told us to be established, to be representatives of Jesus. When we love other people, we are a witness of Christ in us to the world. We're not supposed to blend in. People are supposed to look at you and go, you're different. What do you have that I don't seem to have? And, and, and what does the world do? The world is constantly twisting love. Love is something that benefits me. It's selfish or it's perverted in some way. Love is a very self-serving act in this world. Love is supposed to be this unconditional thing that we have for people, for humans, for things created in God's image because we love God. It's not self-serving. Look in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ to which you were indeed called in one body rule in your hearts and be thankful. Okay, sometimes when we talk peace in the Bible, it's a very internal thing, like the peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding, right? That's a lot of times when we see that word peace, we immediately go inward. But th that's actually not the, the starting point of this statement. So what he's talking about here is letting the peace of Christ be like a, an umpire or a judge in your community, in the body of Christ. So basically, as you have conflict with each other, let the peace of Christ sort that out. Let that rule. This is still about loving others. Last week in, in uh, verse 11, Paul says that we're all equal in Christ. There's no difference, right? We talked about how racism has no place in the in the Bible because Paul says when we become Christians we are equal we are all the same we have the same status 
under Jesus in, in Jesus' name. So if we're equal, we saw that last week, and we're in one body, which is what he's saying right now. Listen, what is a body that's warring against itself? What do we call that? Say again? Sure, sure. It's called being sick. When your body is at war with itself, you are sick or dying. The body of Christ is the same way. If we are warring against ourselves, we are dying. That is not what God has called us to. Why does it, so, so I said it's not internal, and yet he says, let it rule in your hearts. He's talking about being sincere. Not this like, yes, I'm at peace with all people, and really in your head you're going, you all suck. He's saying have this sincere peace with other people. Actually care about them, love them. You ever heard the phrase, hurt people, hurt people? I love that phrase. It, it, it's just, it's so simple, right? Hurt people, people who have been hurt, are the ones that go around hurting other people. So here's the question. Is your life at peace? Are you at peace with God? Or is your life anxiety, rage, depression, fear? If you're not at peace with Christ, if that doesn't rule in your heart, you can't be at peace with other people. If what rules you is rage and depression and, and fear, that's what you bring with you. That is what you are going to bring to the body. So at the end there, he tacks on a phrase. He says, be thankful. Why does he do that? Read verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. All right, so he said the peace of Christ, in the last verse, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. And then in this verse he says, let the word of Christ dwell within you. And both times he ends with be thankful. So these verses have the same structure. Something that Christ has, dwelling or being inside of you, and then being thankful for that. The word of Christ, that's a weird phrase. We hear the word of God a lot, right? The Word of God is the Bible, right? The Word of Christ, what Paul's trying to do is he's trying to be more specific here. The Word of Christ is the gospel and the teachings of Jesus, specifically. Okay? And, and here's why that's important. He's saying the peace of Christ is how we love other people. And he's saying the gospel, the Word of Christ is the gospel and teachings of Jesus. If both of these things are, are dwelling within you, are ruling your heart, guess what? You're a child of God. You've been saved. You have glorious riches. God Himself, the peace of Christ and the Word of Christ being in your heart is evidence that you have been chosen and beloved. You know why you should be thankful? Because God has saved you from hell. God has pulled you out of judgment and wrath. He, he has chosen you. Listen, we get all, all self-righteous in our culture about hell. Well, I haven't done anything that bad. And God's just, what, just angry at me? Just sends me to hell? Just going to torture me forever? Real loving. That's how we act. Like somehow we have some kind of like entitlement to be in heaven. 
Here's the reality. Hell is your choice. God doesn't want you to go there. God wants you to come to salvation. He wants you to be with Him. Our culture wants to live devoid of consequences. You don't get to jump off a cliff and be mad at me when you die at the bottom. That's not the way it works. There are consequences for your actions. If God has saved you and the evidence dwells in you, that should cause you to have gratitude, praise in a real way. Listen, if you're not thankful for what God's done for you, you may not have anything to be thankful for. You may have not actually experienced this saving grace. Because if you've really experienced it, if you understand what God has done for you, it produces a heart of gratitude. Listen, coming to church doesn't save you. Reading the Bible doesn't save you. Paul says to let the gospel dwell richly within you. What does richly mean? It means sincerely. It means to actually take up residence, to be in your heart, not just, again, what do we talk about? Not just an intellectual understanding. This is the problem. In America, I have conversations with people and I, and I say, well, are you a Christian? And they know all the buzzwords. They know how to recite the gospel because they've heard it their whole lives probably. That's not something that dwells sincerely in their heart. That is word vomiting what they learned in VBS every summer for their entire childhood because their mom needed a week of daycare. So if the Word of God dwells richly within you, what does that look like? It's not fleshly. It's not a fleshly um, uh, experience. James, in James 2.19, I want to read this verse to you guys. James 2.19, he says, You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder. Now, I want to explain this. I think this is one of the most abused verses in the Bible. People use this verse to somehow justify this statement that um, believing in God isn't enough. It's not what James is saying here. And you have to understand the context of James to get why that's not right. Okay, James is constantly working from the, from the end backwards. Okay, So James, James would say it like this. If you don't have actions that show that you've been changed by God, if you don't have gratitude, thankfulness, good works that show that God lives in your heart, what makes you think you believe? Right? So if we understand that that's the context of James, that he's constantly saying not that these things save you, but that they, they show that you have made the gospel a real thing in your heart, so now we can look at this statement about demons believing and we can understand that he's going backwards again. He's not talking about demons having a belief system. Demons don't have to believe in God. They know he exists. You don't have to believe I exist. You can see me, right? Demons know God exists. It's not a statement about demons' belief system. The focal point of James in this verse is that they shudder. Their reaction to the reality of God is fear, trembling, shuddering. What's yours? Is your reaction to the reality of God in your life 
gratitude and thanksgiving? Good. That's the evidence that it dwells richly within you. But if the reaction that you have to, to God is to keep sinning, to live however you want or to be in fear, you've missed it. You've missed it. It doesn't dwell richly within you. I'm going to read Hebrews 6, 1 through 8. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works of faith towards God, of instruction about washing and laying on of hands, and about the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and produces vegetation useful to those who, uh, for whose sake it, was, it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and is close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. Look at verse 1 again. Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about Christ. This verse, this set of verses in Hebrews is about Christian maturity. It's about growing in your relationship. It's this idea that if the Word of God dwells richly within you, you grow as a Christian. And if what really happens is instead of growing as a Christian, you produce thorns and thistles, what's really inside of you? Listen, how many times are you going to be told to read your Bible before you get serious about having a quiet time? How many times are you going to be told that prayer is the only thing that changes the world around you before you get serious about meeting God in prayer and talking to Him? How many times are you going to be told that you need to be being poured into in discipleship and you need to be pouring out to somebody in discipleship before you try to get plugged into the church? How many times are you going to be told to write the Word of God on your heart before you try to memorize Scripture? Listen, don't, don't mishear me. These things don't save you. The question is, if you have no interest in God, how do you know you've met Him? If this is just something you do because all your life you've been told on Sunday we go to church, how do you know that you've actually met God? I've met God. I know Him. And because I know Him, I want to be in His Word every day to hear what He has to say to me. I want to pray and talk to my Lord and Savior. I want to be poured into and to pour out into others. The reality of who Jesus is in my life manifests in my behaviors. This doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you're not going to mess up. I still miss days of quiet times every now and again. Like, that happens. I'm not talking about, like, forever. The next 365 days, if you miss once, I don't know if you're safe. That's not the point. The point is, get serious. Get serious. Look in verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, 
do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Whatever you do, everything you do, anything you do. Listen, word or deed covers the whole spectrum of human action. You can only either do deeds or speak words. Word or deed, anything and everything you do, do in the name of the Lord. What does that mean? Listen, we, we're really bad about this in, in America. We, we end our prayers like this. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, like that's watered down. That's a great way to end your prayer, but you need to understand what you're saying. Because right? if your prayer was like, I really want a Ferrari, in Jesus' name, amen, I, like, that's probably not going to cover it, okay? That's probably a misunderstanding. It means to bear his name, to be branded by the name of Jesus. It, we're, we're back to being established. You're a witness. You're representing Jesus to the world around you. When you do something in Jesus' name, you are showing the world who Jesus is. Do your actions represent Jesus to the world around you? Have you ever been cut off by somebody road raging and on the back of their car is the Christian fish? That is not somebody who is representing Jesus to the world around them. That's just a small example. And here's the real question. I, you may not road rage. Your sin may be in the quiet place at your house alone. But are you representing Christ in your heart and in your actions and in the way that you live your life when nobody's looking? And then he ends that verse again. He says, give thanks. Listen, if someone saves your life, like, you, like the guy that tackles you out of the way of the oncoming bus or the fireman that pulls you out of the burning building, would you just be like, cool, dude, thanks. See you never. No, somebody saves your life. You're probably buying them dinner every day for a year, right? Like that person, you have gratitude towards that person. They just saved you. But we seem to do this with God. God snatched us out of debt and slavery to sin that was taking us by our own choice to hell. And we go, cool, dude, thanks. I'll talk to you in a month when I need something again. Listen, this message is not about being perfect. It's not even about trying harder. We, Paul has just gotten done in chapter 3. So far, he said, there's an old self of you. Don't do these things. And there's a new self of you, of you. You should do these things, right? This old and this new self. So the question is not, how do you be perfect? Or how do you try harder? The question is, how does the new self start winning? How does the new self start overcoming the old self? It comes from knowing God in a true relationship. What did I say at the very beginning of this message? You act like who you hang out with. Spend time hanging out with God and watch your actions change to mimic who your best friend is. And if you don't think that your best friend should be the person that saved you from hell, I don't know what to tell you. No one on earth has ever done anything for me more 
than God who gave His only Son for me. No one on earth has ever done more for me than Jesus who gave Himself for me. Not only do I have gratitude for that reality, but that's who I spend the most time hanging out with. And because of that, I watch my actions begin to mimic Him. I know God, so I act like God. And when I act like God, I know Him more. Paul's saying the same thing this whole book over and over and over again. And if you pay real close attention, that's what the whole Bible is talking about. The whole Bible is one message. Know God so you can act like God so you can know God more. Start hanging out with God. Hey guys, this is Philip Jackson, pastor of young adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen Church in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of Reach Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that's defined by real transformation and a sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.